Welcome back to another episode of the Hitchcock Minute. Each week, Movies by Minute hosts examine the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock-directed thriller North by Northwest, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm of DeanHaspiel.com. Wow. And I'm Josh Newfeld of JoshComics.com. Together, we co-host Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. But today, we're here to talk about minute number 134 of North by Northwest, which starts with two people climbing down the side of Mount Rushmore and ends with the same two people climbing around Mount Rushmore. <laughs> well, they haven't progressed very far. Well, sometimes it takes a minute. Yeah, it takes a minute. It takes a minute. Okay. <laughs> so the two people are Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint, and they are perched on the side of Mount Rushmore between George Washington and... Um, I almost said Thaddeus Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) He's the guy we didn't put up on Mount Rushmore. Thomas Jefferson. Yes. And the Bernard Herrmann music starts to ratchet up as our heroes survey the mountainside. Don't you think this should be called the Bernard Herrmann Minute? Basically, because it's all sound. I mean, it's visual. There's literally no dialogue. There's no dialogue. And and that actually is part of what helps create the tension. Yes. And, uh, you know, our heroes survey the mountainside seeking a safe getaway from the approaching danger of killer henchmen. Mm, Uh, That's what the scene is all about. Uh, The wind blows as they climb and slide around the president's heads, and then Martin Landau suddenly appears on the side of uh, Abraham Lincoln and encroaches upon our desperate protagonists. Yeah. I mean, it's all very well done. You're getting points of views. You get new angles. Like, at one point, uh, they're looking over, and and there seems to be a safe space of mm-hmm. a couple of presidents, and they look back up and they see underneath the chin of George Washington, right? And then they decide, you know what? Let's go this other way because that's too much of a hassle, you know, to climb back up. So let's climb down. They're looking down, and you see mm-hmm. how far the trees are tiny, and there's a lot of like what looks like rubble or old, you know, other stones, but farther away. So it does present the danger that you need. You know, there's this moment we feel like, well, maybe the coast is clear, and they start to move towards Lincoln when Martin Lando shows up, right? And that's probably the first time of all the map painting or wherever they do the special effects that it looked a little hinky. Like you were wondering, is he coming out of a tunnel? The side, the lighting was just very different from the rest of the lighting. Yeah, it definitely looked like it was a composite shot where they had these beautiful matte paintings right. and then they had superimposed basically, you know, and a the lighting set was shot. off and you're wondering, it was like flickering yeah. lighting like torches or and something. And it could be the print that we're looking at, whatever, maybe they've adjusted it better, who knows, you mm. know. But there was one moment where I thought, wow, Cary Grant must be very good at climbing without his hands. Oh, really? Because he's... Oh, you're right. He's holding the idol in one hand and her right. hand in the other hand. And the idol is a small pre-Columbian statue called a Tarascan warrior. Tarascan, I Tarascan think. warrior. Yeah. Which was like a tribe in ancient Mexico that was like uh, rivals with the Aztecs. With the Aztecs. So... There's this one particular moment where they climb up the hill of the side of one of the president parts, let's mm-hmm. call it, like <laughs> shoulder parts. or something, you know. And he is at, not only is he holding the idol in one hand while climbing, mm-hmm. you know, a fist, but he's helping her with her hand, with his hand. There's no way he could be ascending, you know, except unless he has the most powerful legs in the world, you know. Which and he it, may have had. He may have had. Yeah. And, you know, it's a split second. It's a moment. So right. you, you just go with the flow. Yeah, right? I didn't even notice that. But, but it did make me true. wonder if at one point during production, we're like, damn it, 
why did we have this like idol be this mm-hmm. kind of very cumbersome thing to I mean it's cool for like the auction scene, you know, and right. looking at artwork and whatnot. But couldn't it have just been something that had a strap on it that he could just flip over <laughs> his shoulder or something? Like, you know? So Yeah. Well that is the classic MacGuffin, right? I think Hitchcock coined that term, which is like the object that is what the whole movie revolved around, but actually the audience doesn't care about it at all because it's really just the engine for the plot. That's right. And in this case, it's this statue that Van Damme won at the auction way back when. Right. And then later has been discovered that it has the microfilm that they're trying to transport back to their evil communist country. Right. But it really has no value inherently. And and we as the audience don't care about it. It doesn't matter to us one way or the other. Well, at this point, we care about the people. We care about our heroes and whether or not they're going to make whoopee. But for the... (laughs) For the purpose of the of the plot of the movie, it's important that the protagonist has that, and yes. that's what everyone is trying to get, and right. etc. So it also is what makes him important. Who the Taraskin? Oh. No, the the MacGuffin, the the object makes him more important. Otherwise, he'd be like, "Bye, see ya. Don't care about you." You know, because he doesn't present much of a danger. He otherwise, doesn't, he doesn't have the idol for most of the movie. It's no, but only now at the very he's end. really important because right. he's kind of set it's up. A, he's used. He's sure. abused. Yeah. But at this point, he's now important because he actually has the thing that, the ever, thing that, that the bad want. guys want. And yeah. do they ever explain in the movie what's in the microfilm? What, what's supposed to be? What it represents? I think the I don't think they ever actually explicitly say, it, but you know, this was that era of the Cold War when spies were taking you know illicit photographs of American military operations or scientific things okay. or whatever, and getting bringing them back to their country. So, so that was the idea is that somehow they had acquired these top secret images right. that they needed to get back to X country. And were you telling me earlier that this was like the precursor to the James Bond movies, or at least? Well, they, the James Bond books had been written. Yeah, and I know other of our hosts have talked about this at length, but right. yeah, the James Bond books had been written in the 50s, I believe, by Ian Fleming, right. a number of them. And then in 1962 or three, was Dr. No was the first James Bond movie. So there's been a lot of... Sean Connery. Right. right. Um, there's been a lot of discussion of the fact that maybe this movie sort of served as a template for the way that they approached making the Bond movies. And, you know, there's a lot of similarities between sort of the tone of the whole thing, mm-hmm. the combination of action and humor and debonair, right, right. you know, uh, gentlemanly behavior and the way that the main bad guy here is has that sort of, uh, you know, arch enemy, rich bad guy yeah. But also very sophisticated, you know, has all those qualities that mm-hmm. so many James Bond villains had. Mm-hmm. So I could totally see that. And this that. movie was such a success that it may very well have been an inspiration for the producers of the Bond series to think there's an audience for this kind of right. filmmaking. That makes sense. Yeah. So I was also thinking, you mentioned the matte paintings before, mm-hmm. and the production designer, Robert F. Boyle, worked very closely with Hitchcock on this film, particularly with these scenes with Mount Rushmore, because as we talked about earlier, they were not able to film, obviously, mm-hmm. at the actual monument or on the faces of the presidents. And so they had to very carefully plan out and construct these scenes through pre-visualization. So I know that Hitchcock was really engaged and involved with storyboarding his movies, and he worked very closely with Boyle as his production designer, and then the various artisans, you know, back in the Hollywood backlots who 
painted these giant matte paintings. And that first shot when they look to their left and they see the faces of Lincoln and Roosevelt is a, just a gorgeous, very detailed matte painting. And I'm assuming the shot from underneath when they look to their right and they look underneath Washington's chin, that that's also a painting and possibly even the shot where they're looking down at the valley below. What had Boyle, you said? Frank Boyle? Robert F. Boyle. What had he done previous? He collaborated several times with Hitchcock. Um, he worked on Saboteur, and then he was the full-time production designer for North by Northwest, The Birds, and Marnie. And other credits include Cape Fear, which we've talked about before, In Cold Blood, Fiddler on the Roof, Winter Kills. So he was working, you know, quite into the 70s. Private Benjamin even into the 80s. So he had a long and distinguished career. I'm seeing here that he died um, in 2010 at age 100. Wow. So, And he got to see like what happened to cinema after that. The, all that labor and work they put into matte paintings. Yeah, because we're now in the era of... And, yeah. And so I, I've been reading that they've been starting to get back into using projection and paintings and stuff more. Like I think the Mandalorian TV hmm. show used some actual practical painting effects and non-CGI effects, which is kind of cool. But yeah, it says here that at 98, Boyle became the oldest winner ever of an honorary award at the Academy Awards. Mm, that's cool. Well, that's great. I mean, yeah, so basically the scene is, is, there's a lot of looking up, right, left, down, deciding when to move, where to move. It's like a cat and mouse game, you know, a yeah. little bit. And it made... It actually brings me back to a discussion we had a couple of days ago about the acting style that Hitchcock seemed to favor in his movies and how Cary Grant really exemplified that kind of very theatrical and, mm -hmm. and sort of artificial acting style mm -hmm. versus like the method actors. And we were talking, I think, uh, uh, when we were talking about Eva Marie Saint and you were saying how much you enjoyed her work in mm -hmm. On the Waterfront mm -hmm. and how the, her character in that movie is like very different than the very reserved and cool character that she plays in this movie and how on the waterfront obviously is known for Marlon Brando and his method acting and she was probably more in that you know that style of acting was what was wanted sure. in on the waterfront right so the guys who started off this podcast way back in January I mean we're recording now in the heat of summer it's mm. July you know but back in January the wilder ride guys were talking about and and I made me think about this a little bit more, that Hitchcock preferred to work with theater actors and he really didn't like the whole method acting style because he had such a regimented way of putting his movies together. And as we also have talked about, and I know others have talked about that, when he had finished storyboarding his movie and plotting it all out, for him, like the creative work was done. And as far as he was concerned, his movie was done. It just had to actually be shot and acted. Mm -hmm. But he didn't want actors who would freelance on the set. Right. He needed them, if, if he needed an actor to look left because mm -hmm. he had a shot set up where the, we would see their POV, he needed them to hit that mark every time. And so actors like Cary Grant and I think Jimmy Stewart who would do, they would perform each take exactly the same way every time. They had that, that was, you know, ingrained into their style. That, that was the kind of actor that he wanted to work with. Yeah, I think he would have had a tough time with a Brando. Mm -hmm. You know, I know that a lot of method acting suggests that maybe every take is different mm -hmm. because you're exploring the character Joaquin Phoenix recently, you know, so he's trying to find the truth mm -hmm. in a moment, which, you know, recommends their style of acting, you know, yeah. but I also totally get like 
a regimented kind of mapped out, especially in a chase scene or something that involves other quote actors, i.e. the background, mm-hmm, you know, exactly. becomes an actor, you know, yeah. or the sky or the weather or whatever the special effect needs to be employed, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of have to hit a, a certain mark. And that could feel stunted. From an actor's point of view. From an actor's point of view, I yeah. mean, you, you could see that how it doesn't totally work when you have a CGI set, you know, because you're just looking at green walls or, mm-hmm. or a green prop or something. And there is something, too, interacting with that has a human quality to it or that's alive, you know, something, you know, that you can tease or pick apart or whatever yeah versus like something that's just there to hit the mark and map the story you know right i think for our modern sensibility us recording this in in 2020 Mm -hmm. that's a certain naturalism is what we expect now as Mm -hmm. viewers of films well verite documentary style i mean you know anybody who watches scorsese's goodfellas Mm -hmm. he he said he made three movies three different movies because there's three acts and he, in particular, each act has a different style of filmmaking. One of them is more of a documentary style. Oh, that's interesting. And when you watch the movie, you can see it and feel it. Oh, wow. You know, I got to go back and watch that yeah, again. It's really for, interesting. Appreciate it from that perspective. Yeah. But you can see why Hitchcock really is, like his movies are auteur movies in that true definition because his vision, his method, and his process is the preeminent quality of all of these movies it's never really about the acting the music even is you know secondary it's really about what did hitchcock the man the director the producer the guy who was in charge from a to z how did this movie reflect that vision more than anybody else who is involved it's funny because i think he i don't know if he drew but i think he would have made a great cartoonist Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know well i wanted to talk about that because this scene more than any other because it has no dialogue at all really is about the viewer having to read the visuals absolutely and Comics are so much about reading the words, but mm-hmm. also reading the pictures and the way that the words and pictures work together That's to right. create the entire effect. So in this scene, it's like we're listening to the sound, which is helping to guide our experience. But more than anything else, we have to really pay attention to mm-hmm. what the characters are seeing as well as what we're seeing unfold mm-hmm. on screen. Because I think if this scene were done now, there would probably be dialogue in there. There would be like a moment where uh, Roger would be like, oh, no, he's over there. Quick, let's go left. You know, there would be more of a see cow, say cow kind of style of something. But it was like Hitchcock really trusted the viewer to be very closely paying attention to each specific shot in this film. And we can almost break it down. We can see that, you know, when the scene starts, they're climbing down and then they look left and we see their point of view of what they see left. That's where we see the shot of Roosevelt and Lincoln and there's no threat there. So then like, okay. And then they look, they turn right. We see a shot of them turning to the right. Then we see their point of view of Washington's chin from below. Then they look down. And we see the valley below. So now we have seen the protagonist look in every direction, which is what you would do in a situation like that. And they choose to go left because that seems like the easiest way to go. Then as they're heading left, Leonard emerges from the other side of Abe Lincoln. And now there is a threat. They Roger points and she reacts and sees what he's seeing. And then they turn and head the other way. Leonard follows. There's climbing. Leonard's getting closer. They're building up tension just through what we are seeing unfold without any dialogue. And it's pretty impressive. And I would like to actually break that down. Like if it was a comic book, like how many pages would that be? I do know that 
when you remove text or you know dialogue or captions or sound effects from comics, suddenly it amps up the speed of the reading experience because you're just seeing a bunch of just images and you're absorbing it pretty quickly. And what stops the images from moving quickly is the words, you know. And I and I I employ that a lot in my own comics when I have an action scene. Is I I just dive into the action. What why do people have to talk? They don't have to talk. Right. Spider Man famously talks through every punch. Yes. Because he's <laughs> got to be funny or witty, and it's slowing down the action. Or that is the reading experience because of that banter. You know. I agree with you, except in the case where. I think, and particularly you see this in more modern comics, when there's a quiet moment where nothing is happening, instead of that feeling like a quick moment that, you know... Well, a pause, uh, an earned pause can can stop you in your tracks. Yeah, and that makes you you really have to stop and look at the art maybe more than you might have otherwise. Because I I agree with you, I I, I tend to, especially in action-oriented comics, to read the words, get a quick sense of what's happening visually, and then move on to the next panel, move on to the next panel, keep that like quick rhythm going. Mm -hmm. But I think in the comics that I tend to favor more, which are the more quiet and alternative quote-unquote mm-hmm. comics that tend to have you know these quiet moments and pauses and stuff when there's no dialogue that actually slows down mm-hmm. the reading experience and makes you have to pay more attention mm-hmm. and it's funny because in comic books there's something called the splash page which is just basically the entire page is one panel yeah and that sometimes can be an establishing shot and sometimes could be a close-up right you know, it can serve the same you know idea you know uh in one panel i think some of my favorite cartoonists that really know how to use action well and move around the page are creators like, you know, the late Will Eisner, you know, with the spirit. He knew how to create a certain kind of like narrative ballet, you know, Frank Miller in Daredevil and Sin City uh, was quite cinematic with the way he used panels and could just show action and you know, like a Daredevil fight scene was incredible to, because it, yes. it did show you where you were and where to look, kind of like this sequence in mm-hmm. North by Northwest. He was very good at keeping you kind of centered while things were happening, you right. know, while, while chaos emerged. And that is like a constant criticism of action movies from critics and reviewers is which directors sort of know how to shoot an action scene so that the viewer kind of always knows where things are in relation Mm -hmm. to each other Mm because it is very hard once a lot of stuff starts happening to sort of tell you know there there needs to be a narrative to the action and everything in it needs to make sense and for the reader to understand the relationship between the various figures in that scene and kind of feel like they know where they are at all times Mm -hmm. and a lot of directors there are a lot of directors who don't really know how to shoot a technically an action scene. And Hitchcock certainly was one who did. I remember early on drawing a bar scene in a comic when I was much younger. And I knew that we'd be cutting around the, the bar to different characters talking. But where were you in the bar when he cut around just to mm-hmm. feel centered and established? And I remember using a dartboard. Hmm. And wherever the dartboard was... Oh, you mean as a prop within as a prop the scene? In, yeah. the ba- in the background, mm-hmm. so that if you were far away from the dartboard, that's where you were in the bar. If you were close up to it, right. that's where those characters were. Right. And sometimes you have to draw those characters in the background or the foreground or whatever, mm-hmm. but the dartboard kept everyone centered. Yeah. Whenever I do any scene that takes place in a in a locale, I always do like a little blueprint overhead shot of it first, so I know like where where's the door in relation to that wall and what you know table is over on this 
side and if I have the characters moving around within it, whatever angle that I'm shooting it from, that I'm drawing it from, it makes sense within that blueprint of the room and, mm -hmm. and keeps the reader situated and feels like this is a, a space that makes physical sense. Yep. So... Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting minute because there's a lot to talk about, even though there was literally no dialogue. And as you said at the beginning, not much changes other than there's building tension. And we do now, the characters now know that they are being hemmed in on one side. And what they don't know, but we do, is that coming down on the other side of Washington is Valerian, the other, uh, what did you call him, villainous henchman? <laughs> so... Um, curious to find out what happens next but yeah. I, I i remember you mentioned something about you had written a story that took place on mount, on rushmore. mount rushmore and do you want to maybe share that with us we have I a little share time story left. now or i could save it for the next episode should we do it I, now? i'd say now okay yeah all right let's hear it so i currently write and draw a character called the red hook and the red hook you can read for free online webtoon or it may be just called webtoon now which is a free webcomics app on your phone and i guess the short version of the red hook which is now there are three seasons up online and i'm working on the fourth one right now and three trade paperbacks no there's two paperbacks because the third one hasn't been published yet oh but it's coming it should soon. Uh, hopefully soon ish but the first one uh is called the red hook new brooklyn and volume two is the red hook war cry and they were both published by Image Comics. Image Comics, yeah. that's right. And then the third one is online right now is, is Starcross. And so the Red Hook is basically a super thief that is uh, forced to become a superhero against his will or he will die. And you have to read to find out why. Mm. During a time where Brooklyn reveals herself to be sentient. and uh, Herself. Oh, that's right. Interesting. And she's basically heartbroken by the toxicity of the world. So much so that she elects to literally and physically secede from New York City, ergo America, to start her own republic where art can be bartered for food and services. Nice. Yeah. Sounds good. So with that in mind, the reason why I bring up the Red Hook, and he has a girlfriend called the Possum, which she goes through a lot of changes in the series as well. And I wrote this little short story that I have not drawn yet. So what I'll be sharing with you is basically the plot breakdown of this short story. So this is kind of the way you often will, and I think I work, we work similarly, is when you're coming up with a story idea, you almost write it as a prose story yeah. with certain kind of rhythm to it, and then you break that down into the script, and then from the script make your, your artwork. Right, and part of the point of this part of the process is to excite myself as the artist. Mm -hmm. Meaning, like, if it would be a prose story, then I don't need to draw it. Like... So right. I try to create instances where, oh, that would be fun to draw mm -hmm. and how to draw this and how to think this way and that way. And, you know, just kind of like activate the brain in a way to, to start thinking in terms of visuals. So this also serves that. The story is called Between a Rock and a Hard Face. <laughs> and I'll just read to you verbatim uh, my little breakdown. Go for it. The red hook dangles from Abraham Lincoln's concrete eyelid on Mount Rushmore. The Red Hook reminds himself that he was originally brought here on a romantic getaway with the possum, who was zapped by a burst of energy and vanished. Now, the Red Hook is on a desperate mission to find his girlfriend, but is convinced that she is buried somewhere inside Abraham Lincoln. Suddenly, Lincoln blinks, sending the Red Hook falling 30 feet before grabbing onto Lincoln's lip and flipping back up and through the dark canal of Lincoln's nose before the mountain tries to chomp down on him. 
So speaking of sentient things, you know, yeah. he's alive. And so he's the man in Lincoln's nose. That's right. Cut to the possum in a coma-like trance, tube sticking out of her body as her life force slowly transfuses into a small alien space car that she is strapped to the hood of. A bigger tube coming out of the back of the car is connected into the rocky cavern. Cosmically transformed blood pumps through it. Meanwhile, the Red Hook crawls through stalactite-littered canals of Lincoln's olfactory like a human sinus infection, and he inadvertently gives the mountain a splitting migraine. There is a rumble and a loud roar as the mountain sneezes. Red Hook grabs hold of a stalactite. The sneeze unhinges the possum from the space car, tube snapping and spilling cosmic transfused blood, and she goes hurtling through Lincoln's throat and is coughed out of his mouth and up towards the top of Mount Rushmore. Possum phlegm. <laughs> Concurrently, the Red Hook gets sucked into the brain of the mountain, holding a broken off stalactite in his hand and confronts the culprit of this bizarre date, who just so happens to be a weakened alien nursing a headache. Next to the alien is an old American time capsule from the 1960s. The migraine-compromised alien strains to telepathically communicate to Red Hook, revealing that he had discovered a time capsule from planet Earth that crashed onto the slave farm of his telekinetic planet <laughs> and found within the time capsule some books. One book was a novel called The Modern Prometheus by Mary Shelley. I've heard of that one. And the other was a book on American history. And from the little he could decipher, he became obsessed with Abraham Lincoln and the concept of emancipation, something he wished his own planet would adopt. Emboldened by the American dream, the alien broke free of his government's telekinetic bonds, stole a space car, and rocketed to Earth in hopes of recruiting Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator, only to learn that the old president's head was frozen in stone and stuck in a mountainside among three <laughs> other presidents. Oh, that's what happened. <laughs> Unclear of the physics of Earth, the alien was inspired by Mary Shelley's Frankenstein story and attempted to reanimate Abraham Lincoln with the power of his telekinesis coupled with human blood. And that's why he kidnapped the first human he saw, the possum, for her life force. Oh. A human battery to resurrect and recruit Abraham Lincoln to help free his planet from slavery. The Red Hook smacks his forehead in utter disbelief and drops the stalactite and chuckles. He tells the alien that Abraham Lincoln died long ago and this mountain is nothing but an extravagant monument honoring his legacy. The Red Hook advises the alien to go back home, convinces people to revolt, end slavery, encourage free will, and a democratic society. He cites Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X as examples of freedom fighters and advises the alien to split the difference between their mantras. And, more importantly, quit bugging his girlfriend. They're in the middle of a romantic getaway and kidnapping someone for their life force to animate monuments is a pretty gnarly thing to do to a stranger. The alien realizes his behavior makes him no better than the magistrates who rule his planet and apologizes, heeding the Red Hook's advice. Standing atop Abraham Lincoln's forehead on Mount Rushmore, holding the unconscious possum in his arms, the Red Hook salutes the alien as he blasts off into the sky back home to his planet in his space car to spark a revolution. Suddenly, the possum stirs and wakes up, punching and screaming. The Red Hook calms her down and says, South Dakota, huh? She groggily purrs something about the best dream I ever had and passes out, exhausted by her drained body. A sudden blast of hot air knocks the Red Hook's ears sideways 
and he looks to his right at the mountain-carved visage of President Theodore Roosevelt and wonders, did Roosevelt just cough? Oh. The end. <laughs> so there you go. There, there's a little uh, insight into what makes me tick. And now you've got an exclusive here, folks, because that's something I haven't drawn yet and may never will. So, yeah, what did you think in the end? Do you think, I mean, there's definitely some great imagery that would be fun to draw, you know. Totally, No man. doubt. So that, to me, feels like it's prime material for a future. It could be a comic. It could be a short film. It could be animated. I mean, mm -hmm. it's very visual. The point is, is to, if you're going to, you know, try to write something that you are want to visualize, then, then push in that direction. Right. So you know? do you remember when you wrote this, whether you were thinking of uh, North by Northwest at all? Or, I mean, probably. Yeah. I, I think it started with, I saw an image, uh, the, a Jack Kirby image of all people, you know, the guy who co created the Marvel Universe. The guy who's on your Mount Rushmore. He's your on my Mount, Mount Rushmore. Rushmore. That's yeah. right. I think I saw a drawing he did of someone climbing the side of a mountain, which was a face. Okay. And then I think it did make me think about Mount Rushmore and then Abraham Lincoln and suddenly Lincoln blinking and then going Lincoln, up his Lincoln. nose and all that kind of. And then, then it started that way. And then I was like, well, why is he going up an animated, you know, Lincoln nose? What's happening inside, you know, his sinuses? And then I kind of came up with this, oh, there's an alien, you know, but he's benign. But what's he there for? And what, and what does he need? And so you kind of start playing with those different ideas. And you try to come up with something fun, but meaningful. I love the way your twisted brain works. It, it, in your mind, it all makes perfect sense. And I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I think it's hilarious that, you know, at one point, this film was going to be known as, I think it was going to be called The Man on Lincoln's Nose or Washington's Nose. Oh, that's a great title, Because our Facebook too. page is The Man on Washington's Nose. I think that was the title at one point. And then the producer was like, no, no, no. That's a better title. <laughs> but there was supposed to be a scene, which we talked about a couple of days ago, where Cary Grant ended up inside of Abraham Lincoln's nose mm. and sneezed. And that was what gave away his position. So See? this would have probably been the scene where that would have happened. But again... I think smarter, more no, sane heads No, they should have done it. They should have done it. What is North by Northwest then? Well, that's kind of the joke of the title is it doesn't really make any sense. Like there is no actual direction North by Northwest. Oh. But in general, I think the leading hypothesis is that because the movie starts in New York City and then kind of ends or climaxes here in uh, South Dakota, that the general direction you would go to get from New York to South Dakota would be north by northwest. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Um, he the does man. take Northwest Airlines at one point, but that seems like a minor, right. minor I mean, detail. It, it's become a great title because of how good the movie is. Yeah. But I don't know if initially that would have been a great title. Right. You know? I, I feel like it fits the ethos of this film being made, which was kind of like they were writing it as they were filming it and kind of figuring out as they were going. Mm. And, and that Cary Grant famously said at one point during the movie to Hitchcock, he's like, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of like very good. <laughs> Stay in character. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, thanks for sharing that. That was some classic Dino <laughs> brilliance you. there, folks. So I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, if you did like what you heard here today, then you should listen to our other podcast, Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean, where we break down the 2003 movie American Splendor, Scene by Scene. We talk about Harvey Picar. We talk about our experience and relationship with him and the joys and challenges of being professional cartoonists. So yeah, if you're interested in Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean, you can find us 
at seenbyscenepodcast.com, where all our episodes are archived, as well as lots of artwork and things related to the film. And we're on the Apple Podcasts and Google Play and all the other podcatchers and Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean on Facebook. So until next time, you can find the Hitchcock Minute podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Play or at the main site, hitchcockminute.com. On social media, we are available at The Man on Washington's Nose on Facebook. And we're on Twitter at Hitchcock Minute. So join us here tomorrow for Minute 135 of the Hitchcock Minute. I'm Dean Haspiel of DeanHaspiel.com. And I'm Josh Newfeld of JoshComics.com. Stop. We got to do it. I remember I changed my name. Oh, <laughs> you're so going to do that hit, again? Hit, hit, hit. Whatever. We can just keep going. I don't even know what it is. I need to make one up real quick. <laughs> um, okay. That's your thing? Okay.